Psalms 139. Verse number one says this, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Now look at the end of this chapter, verse 23. Psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we love you. Thanks for letting us gather in this place. Lord, I'm mindful to pray for those that are unable to be here tonight. Lord, some that are sick, some that are traveling, some that we may not even know the need that they have, the burdens that they are carrying. But God, you know each and every one of them. And I pray that wherever they're at, that you'd minister to them your grace, your presence, your comfort. Lord, I pray you'd meet their needs, and I pray that you'd bring them back safely, that we might fellowship one with another again soon. Lord, we have these requests that have been given tonight. Lord, each one of them is not just a card. It's not just a message written down, but it's a need in our lives. And Lord, we have desperate need of your wisdom, of your power, of your providence, of your comfort, of your strength and help in these matters. We've asked for things tonight, Lord, and we are now presently asking for things that are beyond our ability, beyond our comprehension and our wisdom. Things, Lord, that we don't even know what the right way is. But, Lord, we just want your way in our lives. I pray especially for the salvation of those whose names were mentioned. And, Lord, no doubt some of those unspokens that were mentioned contain names uttered in hearts and and and, and weighing upon people's minds that, Lord, they are troubled and worried and burdened over and seeking for you to work in their heart and in their life and to do a work in them eternal that only you can do. Lord, I pray for them that you'd have an open door of utterance in their mind and in their heart that the Holy Spirit of God would have liberty to work in their lives. I pray, Lord, for those that have financial needs. Lord, you own the the cattle on a thousand hills. God, there's no need that you cannot meet. But, Lord, do it in such a way that you might heap glory unto yourself, that our faith might grow. Lord, that we might see your grace at work in our lives and the lives of others. Lord, I just pray that in all these things that have been mentioned tonight, you'd have your will and way. Bless our time together and bless your word tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm interested tonight in how this psalm both begins and ends. It begins with the psalmist making a statement, past tense, about something that the Lord has done in his life. He says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. What does the psalmist mean when he says this? Well, I think as we come to the close of the chapter, and I'll say a word about this in a moment, it becomes abundantly clear. that What he means is that the Lord has searched his heart and his thoughts, has divined and divided out the intents and, and, and desires of his heart and of his life, and has laid bare and exposed exactly who he is, both good and bad, and that nothing is hid to the mind and to the eyes of God. I want to make an abundantly obvious statement tonight, but I think we ought to have it uh, ring and, and peal like a bell in our ears. You know, the Lord knows us. He knows the things that trouble you. He knows the things that tempt you. He knows what wisdom is in your life. He knows what weakness is in your life. He knows your potential, and he knows your problems. The psalmist is declaring boldly that God has done a transformative work in his heart and in his life, and that he is keenly aware of the fact that God knows him deeply and that nothing is hid from God's eye. But then when we come to the close of this psalm, verses 23 and 24, 
The psalmist asks for something interesting. He says God has already done this, and yet he revisits the thought, and this is what he asks. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's interesting to think that this psalm, 24 verses long, begins both with a retelling of this work that God has done and with a request for God to do this work still. Let me make a couple of simple statements and then I want to preach to you on a thought that the Lord has laid on my heart for this evening. You know, there's no question when God saves a man, he saves him eternally. We don't have to come back to God to be re-saved. Because we cannot lose our salvation because our salvation is not something that is credited to or based upon our own merit in the first place. God didn't save you because he looked down at the statistics of your life and figured you'd be a good bet. If we're to be honest, there ain't one of us that's been a good investment on the Lord's investment in our lives. He's paid more for us than we're worth. (laughs) And he's done more for us than we've ever done for him. And so the Lord saves us, and it is a monumental work, and it is a lasting work in our life. And nothing I'm about to say is meant to in any way discount or disparage that thought. Can I also say that one of the great weaknesses in Christianity today is often people view the work that God does in their life as something that is accomplished in a moment and then never to be given any thought or consideration from that point forward. There's a great many people that if you were to ask them, what's your relationship with the Lord like? They'd say, well, I'm saved. And that's good. That's a good answer. But if you were to say, well, what's your relationship with the Lord like? They'd say, well, I'm saved. Well, no, but but what's your relationship with the Lord like? They'd say, well, I'm saved. (laughs) Well, yeah, but what kind of relationship do you have with him? They'd say, well, but I'm saved. Because the reality is that from the moment that they confessed faith in Jesus Christ and believed on him and God saved them, from that moment till the moment you're speaking to them, a great many people would have to their eternal shame confess and admit that they really have given very little thought to the things of God or to what God expects and demands out of their life. I'll tell you what I love about this song. It begins by saying God's done a great work in my life. And it ends by saying, God, do a great work in my life. It's begun by saying, Lord, you've searched me, you've known me, you've learned me, you've figured me out, you've exposed and disclosed who and what I am. But rather than resting upon that, the psalmist instead is saying, Lord, search me still. I'll preach to you on that thought tonight for just a few moments. Search me still. It's interesting when you read this psalm between the verse that we've read, opening it, and the verses we've read that close it, because some of the richest, most meaningful, most precious, most potent scripture in all of God's word is contained in the 139th psalm. I mean, some statements are made that reveal profound theological and spiritual truth that really shapes our concept and perception of who God is and how God interacts with his people. But beyond just the depth of the truth that is presented, what is the psalmist doing in this psalm? I would say this, that throughout this psalm, we have the declaration of a man that is spiritually mature. 
He is a man that has come to know God and to have confidence in God, to depend upon God, to trust in God, to side with God, to prefer God, to put his faith in the Lord. When we read the 139th Psalm, we're not reading about someone that is a babe in the Lord. We're not reading about somebody who is stunted in their spiritual development. We would maybe say this, in the 139th Psalm, we're reading the testimony of a mature Christian. You know, it reminds me that we never get so mature, we never get so advanced, we never get so uh, experienced, but what we still need the Lord to search us and to work in our hearts and in our lives. Consider some of the wonderful things the psalmist speaks about in this psalm. And I'll go ahead and admit to you, I'm not going to say everything that if, if time would permit me that I'd love to say about it, but I just want you to notice some of the things the psalmist points our attention to. Verse number two, he says this about the Lord. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. He says, Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. You know what I see in this passage? I see a man that has learned something about the completeness of God's perspective. He is under no pretense that he can get away with anything when it comes to the Lord. He's not somebody that believes that he can pull the wool over God's eyes. He's not somebody that believes that somehow he can escape the perspective of God's vision and God's awareness of who he is and what's going on in his life. It's funny the things we convince ourselves we can get away with. (laughs) I look back at things I did when I was a kid and I think to myself, why did I ever think I was going to get away with that? Why did I ever think that I would possibly be able to get away with that? But then I think about my own spiritual life. And I think about so many of the things that I have allowed myself to be deceived and deluded into believing that somehow I could escape God's gaze and God's judgment and God's chastisement. Let me tell you something. It's a mark of maturity when we recognize that we can't get away with things. I understand a lot of people don't get in trouble as they get older because they're just too tired to. But... (laughs) Part of the reason, too, as we mature, that we find ourselves in in less mischief is because we learn just an inexorable truth that uh, always justice and righteousness and judgment wins out. may not look like it when we look at a world that seems to vaunt itself against God's justice, but if you've read the Word of God, you know it's true. Be sure your sin will find you out. The psalmist has no delusion about that. He believes completely that God's perspective is absolute, that there's nothing in his life that he could get away with when it regards disobedience to the Lord. He goes on in verse number 7, and he says this, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. I like these next two verses. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. The psalmist has been convinced of the completeness of God's perspective, but he's also been convinced of the constance of God's presence. 
In other words, he has learned that no matter what he goes through, the Lord is going to be with him. I'm thankful we don't have to go through anything alone. There's going to be times in life you feel like you're alone. There's going to be times you feel like nobody understands what you're going through and what you're experiencing. And part of that is just the infirmity of the flesh. And part of that is certainly the devil has a vested interest in convincing you that you're alone, that nobody understands, that nobody cares what you're going through. But man, I'm so thankful the Lord knows what we're going through. And I'm thankful that no matter what we go through, he is not just aware of it, as the psalmist has already said, but he said he's with us in whatever we're experiencing. He says, I found I can't get away from the Lord. Everywhere I run, he's there. He says, if I was to go to heaven, he'd be there. If I was to go to hell, he'd be there. If I was to take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. In other words, all this is highly poetic language of him saying, if I could go as far as could be imagined, I'd still find the Lord present with me. I love what he says in verse number 11. He said, if the darkness were to cover me over, even the night shall be light about me. In other words, he says, when I find myself going through darkness in my life, through despair in my life, through disorientation in my life, when I can't understand what I'm going through or why I'm going through it, I find that God is still present with me in the darkness. Darkness isn't afraid of God, and he's not afraid of the darkness. In fact, in another place, the psalmist said that the Lord hath made darkness his pavilions, his war room round about him, and God works in the thick clouds of darkness. And the psalmist said, I find that even when my circumstances crowd around me in darkness of situation, that God has a way through the glory of his presence and the sufficiency of his grace of brightening the darkness of my circumstances. In other words, this is a man that's learned what it is to walk with nobody beside him but God, but be satisfied that that's enough. He's learned about the constants of God's presence. Look at verse 13. He says this, For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in my in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. There's a lot we probably say about these verses, but let's just sum it up real simply. What is the psalmist saying here? He's saying this. I've learned that God has always been watching over me. God has always had a plan for me. There's never been a time in my life where God did not care uh, very carefully and very watchfully concerning my life. We would say it this way. He's learned something of the care of God's providence. He's learned that God has a plan for his life and he's learned that God cares for him, that not only God cares about him, but that God cares for him. One of the marks of spiritual maturity in your life is to develop to the place that you understand even when it seems as though things are falling apart, to be reminded that God cares about you. Part of the reason we struggle to cast our cares upon Him is we don't really believe He careth for us. But if we understood how much He cares about us, we'd find it easier to cast all our cares upon Him. It's part of the reason the Bible lays such an emphasis on Calvary as the commendation of God's love toward us. When we look at Calvary, we're reminded how much He loves us and how much He cares about us and how interested He is in our life. I don't know if you're aware of it, but God is deeply interested in what's going on in your life right now. If you have needs, God cares about it. If you have burdens, God cares about it. We live in a world that is very good at not caring 
we live in a world where coldness and indifference seems to be a common way of life. And it's no wonder the Bible describes a time in which the love of many would wax cold because iniquity would abound. I'll tell you this, it feels like it's getting colder day by day in our world. Where the world just doesn't care, it doesn't regard, it's uninterested in the suffering and the plight of God's created uh, beings, of God's uh, creation. But I would have you know this, uh, the Creator cares about His creature. He cares about His creature, and the Father cares about His children. If you're saved by the grace of God, you're not just His creation, you're His child. He cares about you. And the psalmist says, I know that God has always cared about me and cared for me and the things I have in my life. I have because he has provided for me and he has a plan for me. Look at the next two verses. I like this. Verses 17 and 18, he says this. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, there are more in number than the sand. When I wake, I am still with thee. What does he mean when he talks about God's thoughts unto him? We could describe it this way. The thoughts that God has for him or the plans that God has for him. That God has carefully thought out plans for his life. And we could say it this way. The psalmist, he is convinced of the completeness of God's perspective and the constance of God's presence, the care of God's providence, but also of the competence of God's plan. That God has a plan for his life and that that plan is the best plan. That his thoughts towards him are wonderful, that they are glorious, that God has a perfect plan for his life. I'm glad of that. I very often find myself caught without a plan. And I'm somebody that likes to have a plan. I like to have things orderly. I like to have things organized. I like to have a plan and know what is going to happen. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's insecurity. Maybe it's obsession. Maybe it's it's neuroticism. But I just, I like to have a plan. But if I'm to be honest, there's a great many times in life that I have no plan. There's times that I'm faced with problems. And if I was to be honest, I just have to admit, I, I have no idea how this is going to work out. I don't know what I can do to fix it. I don't know what I can do to make it better. I don't know what I can do to solve it. Boy, what a blessed thought it is to know that even when I don't have a plan, he does have a plan. You'll never find yourself in a situation in life that God doesn't have a plan for. Remember, we're talking about spiritual maturity here tonight. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is to be convinced that God's way is the best way. That God's plan is the best plan. You'll be much happier in life if you'll resolve and settle your heart on the fact that God's plan is always better than your plan. That if you can just get God's plan enacted and enforced and working in your life, then the best possible imagined outcome. In fact, I would even go a step further and say outcomes you couldn't even imagine that are far greater and grander than what you can anticipate God can perform in your life. We're talking about a spiritual Christian here tonight. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a man. We're not talking about a a childish, immature, petulant baby Christian that doesn't know who God is, that doesn't have the, the concept of God figured out, that's struggling and groping to understand who this God is that he has come to know. We're talking about somebody that's got some miles behind. Somebody that has learned by personal experience that God is a perfect God and his way is right and he is a trustworthy God. Look at the next verse, verse 19. He says this, Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. This strong language, he says this, Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? 
And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. He says, I count them mine enemies. And you say, preacher, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Boy, we sure took a sharp turn in this verse. We was talking about the goodness of God. Now he's saying he hates the enemies of God. Why did things change so suddenly? No doubt the psalmist's mind was cast towards the fact and the reality that not everybody feels about God the way he feels about God. Now, you may love him tonight. I hope you do. But understand, not everybody loves him. I wish we could live in a world that only loved him. One day we will. But right now we don't live in that kind of world. And here's what the psalmist has come to terms with. He's come to terms with this truth. He can't love the Lord and walk with just anybody. I'm going to say that again. He can't love the Lord and walk with just anybody. I remember hearing years ago John R. Rice talk about a holy hatred. He said, "When listen, a shepherd, he hates wolves because he loves his sheep. And a farmer hates weeds because he loves his crop. And he talked about how there's things in life that if you love something dear enough, it'll make you hate other things. The Bible talks about in the book of Jude how that we should hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. The psalmist here talks about hating those that hate the Lord with a perfect hatred and counting them enemies. Here's what he is convinced of. He's convinced of the consecration of God's people. He is convinced that if he's going to live for the Lord... There's going to be people he's going to have to separate from. I'm going to tell you something. This is a lesson that 99.9% of professed Christendom has not accepted and is not willing to embrace and has not learned in this day we live in. There's going to be, listen, if you're going to love the Lord and walk with him, there's going to be people you won't be able to walk with. If you're going to be a friend of the Lord, there's going to be people who won't be a friend to you and you can't be a friend to them. You can be kind to them, but you're not going to be able to walk in perfect fellowship with them. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is recognizing that our relationship with the Lord is not two-dimensional. That how we interact with other people can affect our relationship with the Lord and that how we interact with the Lord will affect our relationship with other people. In other words, this is a man of great spiritual depth. I understand the, the flaws in David's life. I understand David was a man that made mistakes. But I think there's no question that both in regards to the totality of the testimony of his life and this psalm in particular, that we're not dealing with someone who has a passing knowledge of God, but we're dealing with someone that has drawn from the deep wells of the knowledge of who God is, that has sounded deep the fathoms of his person. This is a man of spiritual depth and maturity. So, preacher, what you getting at? Now look at verse 23 and 24. I would say this tonight. If ever there was a man that could say, I don't need the Lord to search me. I've arrived. It's the man that penned this song. If ever there was a man that was to say, I've learned everything there is to learn. There's nothing more to know. It'd probably be the man that penned this song. If there was ever a man that said, I don't need an altar in my life. I don't need forgiveness in my life. I don't need honesty, humility, sincerity in my life. I've got it all figured out and I'm ready to coast till glory. It was this man that wrote this song. Can I tell you that one of the marks of spiritual maturity, it's not just the things that we've mentioned, the understanding, the confidence and the completeness of God's perspective and the constance of his presence, the care of his providence, the competence of his plan and the consecration of his people. 
But it's a deep abiding understanding that no matter how you develop and cultivate your spiritual life, no matter how spiritually mature you come, you will never get to the place in your spiritual development where you get beyond the searching mind and hand of God in your life. With that in mind, I want you to notice two thoughts and I'll be done tonight. You don't believe me. Search your heart and see if it's true. You don't believe me. You think I'm a liar. But I want you to notice verse 23 and 24, and I got two points, and I'll be done. Verse 23, he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. In verse 23, we see this, his prayer for God to assess his life. I wonder when the last time was that you asked God to take a long, hard look at your life, and you were willing to hear his perspective. It tells me this, Though this is a man of great spiritual depth and spiritual maturity, though this is a man who has a, a profound understanding of who God is and how God works and what God expects, evidently there's still a need. In fact, I'd say two needs. Number one, there's still a need for his heart to be examined. He doesn't say, I'll search my heart. But instead, he asks the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart tells me two truths immediately on the face of it. One is this, that the heart is not automatically or instinctively known by the bearer of it. Now, we understand this. You've heard me say it a hundred times. If I hung around you, I'd say I'd hear you say it a hundred times. But it's worth saying again tonight that the heart is not a force or an influence to be followed or to be trusted But as the prophet Jeremiah said, it's desperately wicked and it's deceitful above all things. Jeremiah goes on to ask this question, who can know it? And then he says this, I, the Lord, try the reins of the heart. See, here's the fact. It's not that your heart is unknowable. It's just that it's unknowable to you or it's unknowable outside of the truth and the knowledge of God. We say all the time, you can't know your heart. Maybe we ought to be a little more distinct. You can know your heart. But you'll only get to know it through this book. You won't know it in and of yourself. And if you trust to instinct or to intuition, it will always get the best of you. Will always deceive you. The psalmist understands that his heart or his perspective or his appraisal of it is not accurate instinctively and naturally and intuitively. Instead, it has to be searched. Now, what does he mean by searching? Does he mean this for the benefit and sake of God? I don't believe so. Because the Lord already knows all things. The Lord doesn't have to search your heart to know your heart. He already knows your heart. Here's what the psalmist is saying. Lord, I want you to search my heart and I want you to tell me what you find in there. What he's really saying is I like the capacity... To be able to search my heart myself. So the only thing I can do is go to the authoritative truth of God's word. Let it pry deep into the recesses of my heart and disclose and expose exactly who and what I am. I wonder if you have enough courage to read this book in light of your life. Not to ask who else it would help. And not to ask who else should hear it. And not to ask who else should know it. But instead, open this book and say, now, Lord, I need to hear something from you about my life. I wonder how willing we are to hear what the Lord has to say about us. 
It's part of the reason we do this sleight of hand. We're all guilty of it. I'm as guilty as anybody. Well, preachers are guilty in different ways. Preachers have a different way of squirming out from under Bible preaching. We do it, but we just do it in a real academic sense. We'll sit under good, strong Bible preaching, and we'll start working on sermon outlines. Amen. That way we can get out of having to hear what the Holy Ghost has to say to us. But oftentimes it is the case that under hearing the preaching of the Word of God and the searching work that the Spirit of God is doing in our hearts and lives, we distract ourselves, uh, we derail ourselves by trying to consider and, and weigh who else would be helped by this or who possibly this could be directed to. Hey, here's the reality. It don't matter whether it helps anybody else here or not. What matters in your heart, in your life, are you willing to be helped by and the psalmist says, I, listen, I know the Lord and he knows me and he's done this work in my life, but I still need him to examine my heart on a daily basis. Your heart could be right today and wrong tomorrow. It could be right at this moment and wrong before we leave here tonight. And so never trust to your heart. He says, hey, there's still a need for our hearts to be examined. But then he says this, try me and know my thoughts. In other words, he says, I need God to assess my life because there's still a need that my heart be examined. My heart will deceive me. But then number two, there's still a need for my thoughts to be exposed. That's a terrifying prospect. Most of us, if, if, if the world knew our thoughts the way God knows our thoughts, we wouldn't feel fit to stand in public life. We wouldn't want to leave the house. We wouldn't want to take the blanket off from over our head, we'd want to crawl up and hide. Understand that oftentimes, not just the thoughts that reside within our mind, but the thoughts that potentially could dwell there are just as nefarious. And here the psalmist says this, I'm asking God to test my life and to find out just what the potential is of what lives in this head of mine. It's amazing. I, I I don't know. Maybe you're not like this. But it's amazing. It's disgraceful. It's scandalizing some of the things that oftentimes when we find ourselves in stressful situations will flash across our mind. People that would consider themselves honest just for a moment. Maybe I could lie and get out of it. People that would consider themselves upright when they have a need in their life. Maybe I could just take this. Nobody would even notice People that consider themselves loving and patient that get out and drive in Knoxville and contemplate homicide. No telling what's in your mind. I'll tell you this. It's a healthy thing not for us to dwell upon impure, unclean, or unholy thoughts. But it is certainly a, a wholesome thing for us to understand that the only difference between some of the most vile people that we've ever known is the fact that they lived out the thoughts that you conceal. And to understand that within the potential and the propensity of your heart and my heart is the same vileness and the same wickedness. You see, I don't think the psalmist is saying I could have some subconscious thoughts that I'm unaware of. I think what he's saying is I want God to show me just what I'm capable of so that I learn not to trust myself. Boy, it's a deep mark of spiritual maturity when you get to where you don't trust yourself anymore. When you understand that leaning upon the arm of flesh, the arm of flesh will always fail you. And if you allow yourself to 
to for one moment let your guard down. I'm not talking about living a life of wrought anxiety. I'm not talking about living a life of, of constant angst. But I am talking about convincing yourself and being resolute in the reality that your flesh is just as wicked and vile as it's always been. You shouldn't turn your back on it. You shouldn't trust to it. You shouldn't count on it. It will always fail you. It will always dishonor the Lord. Verse 23, we see his prayer for God to assess his life. But now it's interesting to note verse number 24, because it reveals to us that this is not an academic pursuit. It's not a speculative exercise, because he says in verse 24, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's asking God to do two things. The first is to assess his life, to show him what he is, to reveal to him what he is. Spiritually mature man, not a babe in Christ. A spiritually mature man that has a, a long and deep and profound knowledge of who God is. But he says, I still need God on a daily basis to examine my life. But the second is this. He's, he's asking, this is his prayer for God to adjust his life. One of the most troubling things to me is the notion that we would ever get to a place that we would be unchangeable by God. I understand what the Bible says. We ought not meddle with them that are given to change. But you and I also understand that there's a whole lot of difference between those that let society change them, those that let culture change them, those that let friends change them, and those that let God change them. And I'll tell you this, if you ever get to the place in your life that you're done with God changing you, then you've outlived your purpose in this world. There's no greater tragedy than a Christian. I guess I've been guilty of it. In fact, I know I have. But there's no greater tragedy than a Christian that gets to the place that they're no longer clay in the hands of the, the Father, that they're no longer malleable to the will of God, that they're no longer willing for God to correct them or to change them in their life. You ought to always be willing for God. God always has the right and the liberty to change your life. See, here's fundamentally what we're getting at. He says, you changed me years ago. But God, I'm still praying for you to change me. You searched me years ago. But God, I'm still asking you to search me. You tried me years ago. But Lord, I'm still asking you to try me. And I just wonder, have you let yourself get to a place where you don't think you need to be searched anymore? Where you don't think you need to be tried anymore? Where you don't think you need to be changed anymore? He points to two things in regards to this prayer for God to adjust his life. First, he says this, there's still a need for our sins to be diagnosed. He says, see if there be any wicked way in me. A way, a practice, a manner of living, a manner of behaving, a manner of acting. Here's what he says. He says, God, see if there's anything in my life that's contrary to you. Anything that displeases you. Anything that dishonors you. In other words, he, and I will tell you this, this is a measure of courage that is not often seen on the battlefield or on the deathbed. A willingness to say, God, if you'll show me where I'm wrong, I want to see it. But I'll tell you, you'll never develop in your Christian life any further unless you're willing for God to show you where you're wrong. Where did all this pride come from? We can't let God tell us that we're wrong. He's God, after all. You're dirt, after all. You're clay, after all. Why couldn't he? He says, I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, I want you to see. Most of us would say, Lord, don't look. 
But he says, Lord, I want you to see. I want you to examine my life. Now, why would he be willing for God to do this? Well, I think because of the next statement. He says, lead me in the way everlasting. So here's his dual prayer in verse 24. One, for his sins to be diagnosed, but two, for his steps to be directed. You see, he wouldn't be willing for God to show him if he weren't himself willing for God to change him. And I tell you often the reason we're unwilling or uninterested in God showing us because we have no intention of God changing us. If you wanted God to change you, you'd want God to show you. My soul, I know you probably don't believe this, but I'm preaching every bit, maybe more at me than I am at you tonight. If you get a little help, that'll be all right too, but I've been to church. <laughs> the reason we don't want him to show us is we don't really want to change it. And we know that all it would do is parade our hypocrisy for him to show us. All it would do is is embarrass us over the fact that we don't love him the way we say we love him. We don't reverence him the way we say we reverence Because if we did, we'd change when he shows us. If we did, we'd change it when he shows us. It's hard truth. I say that. I don't know if there's any hard truth. There's just truth. But our flesh don't like it. To to, to, to realize and to accept the reality that oftentimes the the, mm, the real reason we're willing to play the role of the hypocrite is because it's all we expected out of Christianity in the first place. We never anticipated us scratching the surface any deeper than what could parade us and portray us as something on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And we're often not really all that interested in God changing us on the inside. If we are interested, here's what it's going to take. He's going to have to search us, know our hearts. He's going to have to try us, know our thoughts. He's going to have to see if there be any wicked way in us. But if we'll let him do that, here's what he'll do. He'll lead us in the way everlasting. I wonder if you'd be willing to say tonight, Lord, search me still. Oh, but preacher, I've been saved a long time. That's great. You ought to say, search me still. Preacher, I've taught Sunday school, I've stood behind pulpits, I've sang, I've, I've testified, I've won people to Christ, I've been in church decades. God bless you. That's wonderful. You ought to say, search me still. Preacher, you don't understand the things I've been through and the things God showed me and the things God's done in my life. Praise God. That's wonderful. You ought to say, search me still. Or have you contented yourself to stagnating? And have you given up on the work that God seeks to do in your life? I think we all ought to be willing to say, Lord, search me still. Search me still. Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play. I've done my preaching. I'm not going to do any more. I'm just going to say the altar's open. And if God's touched your heart, would you meet him down here? Would you meet him down here? Oh, my soul, there's a need for all of us to be searched still. Every one of us. Every one of us. Don't matter what you've gone through, where you've been, what you've seen, what you've done. There's a need for all of us to be searched still. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.